1: yeah what's up everybody it's your favorite guilty pleasure the chad and cheese podcast and i'm your co-host joel cheeseman joined as always by my partner in crime chad Sowash. today we're talking economics everybody get get excited on the show andrew flowers labor economist from appcast andrew welcome to the show
2: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Now you sound excited. Well, aside from labor economists, what should our listeners know about Andrew Flowers?
2: Well, um, I am a, a dad, a husband and a fan of a really, you know, uh, underdog football team, the New England Patriots. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so so your, your, your new QB is starting to come around. That was a hell of a lot quicker than I think anybody thought would actually happen. So you've got to be happy as hell right now.
2: Yeah, it's going to be exciting. This uh, uh, offensive rookie of the year, Mac Jones, you know, uh, <laughs> pencil it in. Um, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun time here in, in New England, in Massachusetts. But, uh, but I, I'm not all play. I'm not only just sports. Uh, I, um, I, I do love talking about data and economics and all that nerdy stuff which is what we are going to do today. That's for
0: and God.
1: Our listeners sure. need to know you're also a former Indeed employee, which we will not hold against you. But he
0: got out. Yeah,
1: no, he got out. Yeah, he, yeah, he <laughs> did get out. <laughs> he is yes, yes. And,
2: and former, uh, former Federal Reserve, 538 uh, guy. So all the all the places that people sometimes love to hate on. But, uh, look, our,
1: look at you great name dropping. Spots. Look at you
0: name Federal Reserve dropping. and also ESPN. I mean, the, the, that shit just doesn't mix. How did that yeah. work?
2: How did that happen? <laughs> It's a great question. (laughs) I think Nate Silver, when he left the New York Times and started 538 under ESPN, uh, was looking for some people who knew data. And the Fed is one spot where uh, I was uh, trained. So I I was excited to jump ship because, again, you know, while the Fed was great, (laughs) I'm a sports fan.
1: We only have top-notch guests on this show. I just want to add that. That's that's good shit, let me tell you. Well, a top-notch who can uh, actually use that
0: big brain to talk about the great resignation. Are we sick and tired of all these greats that are happening? The great resignation, the great reshuffling, the great retirement. What the hell is actually going on? Explain it to me, Andrew. 4.4 million people quit last month. Right, so can can we break that down a little bit? I mean, this this all seems how do you define uh, it at a cocktail
1: party? Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah, it's it's quitting, right? It's the upside of of giving up of of quitting, and we see just. These quit rates, which is just the share of workers in a given month who voluntarily, you know, leave their job, these quit rates are at all-time highs at 3% for all employees uh-huh. across the board, but it's particularly high for workers in lower wage industries and in COVID sensitive industries, so think of like retail or restaurant works. Uh, workers, you see, quit rates above six percent uh, in September, and so quitting is really at an all-time high, and it's it, it's a big contributor. That this mm-hmm. great resignation is a big contributor to uh, the broader labor shortages that I know employers face, that recruiters face. But let's just dig in for a second on like okay. what is what is it? Because some people think, okay. Resignation? Does that mean people are just giving up on work and uh, uh, moving to a commune to, you know, <laughs> grow their own organic food and, and, and you know, leave the, the workforce? No. It, it, when people quit, by and large, they quit because they think the economy is strong and because mm-hmm. they have another job lined up.
0: OK. OK. Well, also, and, and let's get into the, the, the psyche of workers, right, because we've we've called them a central. Uh, we have all these. Really minimum wage workers who we've we've gotten really, I think, into their psyche called them essential. Now they understand that they are essential for the supply chain, but yet they're not receiving essential wages. So do you think that because of not just because of covid, but also because of many of these people seeing that they were essential to moving and keeping the economy running that they believe they deserve more cash and you know maybe a maybe a better existence in life
2: i think there's definitely something to that that workers particularly lower wage workers those frontline essential workers you're talking about yeah. they realize that this is their moment to strike that not literally strike though in some cases <laughs> you do see strikes at John Deere and <laughs> other places but this is their moment to Take advantage of the leverage that they have, given that it's a a really difficult time to to fill open positions if you're a recruiter. And so the workers in these industries who are switching jobs, we find, based on data, are actually seeing the the largest wage increases, right? So wages are going up in general for for all workers, but particularly for lower-income workers, lower-wage workers, and particularly for job switchers. So that's part of this – you can call it the great resignation – I also call it a poaching phenomenon where workers know that they can get a better job. Doesn't mean that they're leaving their industry per se, but they're taking advantage of the tight labor market and getting a raise by switching jobs.
1: Andrew, what role does the gig economy have on the the frontline workers? How many how many are just, uh, you know, driving Ubers and delivering DoorDash instead of working at, at, at a full time job? And how does the government calculate gig jobs if they do at all?
2: They really don't. that's a great question. The monthly jobs report that gets all this press attention about you know how many jobs we created that headline number comes from surveys of businesses that you know are reflecting on their their payroll like the actual full-time workers and so they don't count gig workers now when you call in other surveys when the government calls people and say mm-hmm. says, "Hey, do you have a job and if if they you know drive?" Uh, for a delivery service. And so, they're a gig worker. They can respond, yes, I have a job. And so, they're counted in those surveys. But typically, in terms of employment, no, it's going it's to miss a lot of gig workers. The Bureau of Labor Statistics does do a uh, what they call a contingent worker survey, a gig worker survey. But it's not regular. The last data came out, I think, in 2018 or 2019. So, it's way out of date and really stale. But to your point, in terms of gig workers and, and how they're adjusting in this environment, I think it, it makes gig work relatively uh, really a really hard sell for a lot of workers because if you have open opportunities and we have 10.4 million job openings in the U.S. and a mm-hmm. lot of them are in full time salaried positions um, and employers are just desperate to hire. So why would you necessarily take a gig job if you have those openings to to choose from? And so it really comes down to, do you prioritize flexibility in your schedule? Do you like the fact that you set your own hours? And in our data at AppCast, we find that recruitment cost for gig work has just exploded unsurprisingly, right? Who wants to Mm -hmm. necessarily drive when there are COVID risks, when there are other opportunities out there, again, we have solutions for gig employers, but it's just a challenging market to recruit gig workers, period.
1: So is it your consensus that the gig economy is having very little impact on people leaving the workforce and doing that based on your comment around uh recruiting, you know, Uber drivers and DoorDash delivery folks is so challenging? Is that what I'm hearing you say?
2: Yes. I, I think I think the rise of quitting is not really explained by gig opportunities. The rise of quitting is, is explained by the red hot labor market and the fact that they can get these workers who quit, they can get uh, raises, they can get better pay. And, and and in some cases, they're reassessing their careers, right? Well, They're reassessing whether they want to work in a restaurant uh, position. And for older workers, they're reconsidering work altogether. So one thing that's a right. part of this great resignation is retirements, which mm-hmm. surged yeah. during the pandemic. And so whether that reverses, whether some of those folks who uh, are near retirement age, who, who, you know, wanted to say, I'm done with work, I'm, I'm retiring now, whether they come back into the labor market, we'll see. But retirement surged. And, and that's a factor as well as part of this broader labor shortage.
0: But aren't we seeing really the, the definition of work changing now that we have, we've, we've all felt this remote work from home, uh, situation, I guess you can say. Uh, we have, uh, reports where individuals are actually working two full-time jobs. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's like we feel, to me, this is the great awakening. You have the, the, the blue collar types of workers who, Are essential and now they know they're essential and they're going to get their they're going to get their cash. Then you have the white collar remote workers who were told for years that they had to go in you know into the office and out of nowhere they they didn't right yeah they got to work remote. So I mean it just feels like there are so many different aspects of how we work and as we're talking about gig, why wouldn't we move more toward a flexible project type of situation as opposed to just FTE and part time?
2: This is a huge issue, and I think the answer is yes, that worker expectations around remote work are shifting because the forced experimentation that a lot of the economy had to go through during the pandemic reduce the stigma around work from home, right? Yeah. I mean pre-pandemic, yes, yeah, some tech workers, white collar workers, higher skilled folks did work from home at reasonable rates, but it was still kind of a fringe thing. Well, post pandemic or knock on wood post pandemic, let's see if it actually, you know, resolves, but right. but in in 2021, 2022, the stigma around remote work has, if not evaporated, it's reduced significantly. And when you poll workers, when you survey uh, remote workers and some economists have done this and you ask them, hey, are you more uh, efficient? Are you more productive? By and large, they say, yeah, remote work has been a huge success. I, I'm getting a lot more done. I'm not commuting. I can pick my kid up from the bus. I can make it to meetings on Zoom without, you know, doing all the transportation and, and rigmarole around that. People feel who who work remotely, people feel like they're more effective. And mm-hmm. so now there's this really dividing line between workers who desire on average to work from home two, two and a half days a week, on average, again, in the aggregate. There's a there's a dividing line between them and the employers who are a little more stingy. That that they're on average expecting, they're planning for after the pandemic to offer the average worker um the opportunity to work from home on average one day a week. So there's this there's this chasm that has to be negotiated. It's yes. a bargaining chip now.
0: Well that one day is another reason why people are quitting, right? So they they, they call, they're calling bullshit, right? I worked I worked from for 5 days or even more uh from home before. So I mean, it's really interesting that we're having this conversation and there's a negotiation happening where employers still believe they have all the control because they don't they're the ones who actually need to fill the positions so that they can write the code make the widgets etc 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 do you feel like the control is going to start to move more toward the employees and will it stay there just looking at the numbers
2: i think it already has started to move towards uh, worker empowerment because when you just look at the Supply demand, right? Economics 101. There's just a fundamental mismatch. I mentioned this number earlier, but job openings in the U.S. hit 10.4 million. And uh, the number of unemployed people is 7.7 million. Well, that's pretty easy math. That that gap means that there's almost 3 million more job openings than there are unemployed people. And so this fundamental... Supply demand mismatch. And it wasn't, it's, it's never been that high. That gap is, is, is the highest in the history of the data that we have. So workers know that. They know that, hey, wages are rising. They're up six, 7% nominally compared to where they were pre pandemic. And they're yeah. up even more for lower wage workers, they're up eight, 9%. And so, Uh, They know, workers know that they have leverage in this market. That's part of the reason why they feel empowered to quit their jobs. It's part of the reason why they feel empowered to ask for remote work as a key benefit. And how that plays out, again, we've had several decades now where wages have been pretty stagnant. The median wages, you know, worker um, uh, compensation as just a slice of the pie has declined steadily over the last few decades. And whether the COVID pandemic and recession is a inflection point that starts to empower workers. You know, it's too soon to tell, but it's, it's, it's a possibility.
3: The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses,
1: microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers
3: are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud podcast.
1: Curious your thoughts on uh, inflation. And I'm hearing a lot more in the news around that. It's almost a wash that salaries are raising uh, hourly wages are raising, are rising, but so is inflation. And some reports that I've seen recently are that uh, it basically equals out. And when you calculate the cost to now buy a home, which is now quite a bit more than it was before the pandemic and other other things like cars. I mean, at the end of this, do we just say we've been running in place for the last two years?
2: (laughs) There's there's certainly something to that, because, yes, inflation is at a 30, 31 year high. Right. Consumer inflation was up six point two percent year over year recently. That's that's really uh, anomalous for the last few decades, and how it translates to real wage gains. In other words, inflation-adjusted wage gains. On on average, you would you, when you do the numbers, it looks like it's basically flat. Like, yeah, wages are rising, but uh, uh, inflation's eating into that. But here's where it gets interesting. Here's where it gets interesting. Wages are rising fastest the lower you go down on the wage spectrum, and they're pretty stagnant. They're rising just barely for higher wage workers. So in effect. This inflationary episode that we're living through is reducing inequality in terms – it's, it's wage compression where mm-hmm. actually the lowest wage workers, because they're getting such huge you know, wage increases that exceed inflation, they're getting real wage gains. Whereas middle class workers, uh, you know, higher income workers, they're probably getting on net uh, – it's a wash uh, in, or they're actually reducing their purchasing power because uh, – it's just rising too fast prices.
0: So the people that need the money are actually finally getting the money. We've been fucking them over for the last 40 years. Um, and, and remember, we're not paying. We're not giving them any reparations uh, either. Uh, but don't you think that we, we're seeing that there's more money in bank accounts? There's more there's more spending power at the lower rungs that obviously along with ships at the docks. Right. When, when, yes. when we start to see, when we start to see the ships at the docks, I mean, the, the wages, the, the beautiful part about the wage gains is that they're going to stay there, right? Knock on wood. <laughs> the ships at the docks, this is a, a momentary, a moment in time that we're just going to have to get through. So do we see as we start to get all of those supplies back into the supply chain does inflation start to then level out?
2: That's what most economists think, and and how long that is going to take to really kind of unclog these bottlenecks. You mentioned, right. you know, the ships who are docked off of the port of Los Angeles or, or docked off of Savannah or these other main shipping centers, and it's taking you know months for goods to work their way through the transportation chain and and, and we have these uh, supply chains that are ensnared in bottlenecks and so mm-hmm. it's going to take a few quarters for this to process out but a lot of professional economic forecasters do expect inflation to subside as those bottlenecks are worked through. Because when you look at the actual inflation numbers, it's really inflation in goods, in things, right? Appliances right. and cars. And if you have renovated your home during the pandemic, like building materials, those costs are going up. The cost of services, right? Haircuts and movie theater tickets and uh, restaurants, those services prices haven't gone up as much as actual goods prices. And the reason is is, is because of the supply chain bottlenecks, which again, knock on will we'll take some time to resolve themselves and we'll see inflation moderate. The, the key thing to watch, though, is the thing that could spiral us into a disaster uh-huh. is if we, get, if we get a wage price spiral. And what is that? It's when workers realize, hey, the price of gas, the price of milk is going up. I need to have a, a pay increase. And the employer says, you know what? You're right. Here's your pay increase. And the employer to pay for that pay increase raises their prices. Well, that just It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a loop where the wages keep getting raised, the prices keep getting raised, and and so forth and so on. And if inflation expectations of consumers start to get unanchored from where they've been the last few decades, Mm -hmm. that's where we get in a bad zone of ever-rising prices.
1: I don't think immigration gets enough sort of publicity uh, on this topic. And you have some some thoughts on that and and your your presentation that you did recently. Talk about immigration and how the, the lack of new people coming into the country impacts this whole equation.
2: Yeah, it's a huge factor in terms of labor shortages, in terms of recruiting. And let's break it down into two parts. There's the short term impact of immigration changes and then there's the long term. So just during the pandemic, it's estimated that the U.S. economy lost about a million workers just just by visa processing slowing down. That Mm -hmm. when you look at the kind of J visas, the temporary work eligible visas that are issued by the U.S. government, well, those visas started to just go to zero, right? Because of public health concerns and border closings. Well, a lot of industries suffered because they rely on those temporary work visa workers. And so that's the short-term impact. Now, knock on wood, we're speaking in November of 2021, just a few weeks ago, our land borders opened up with with Canada and Mexico, and and visa processing will hopefully continue to uh, increase as, knock on wood, the virus subsides. So that's the short term factor. That's a temporary impediment. But the bigger factor is the second one is the long term factor, and just this is where demographics come in. The U.S. economy's working age population. Without immigration, it actually declined last year in 2020. And over the decade from 2010 to 2020, uh, over that 10 years, our overall population growth was the slowest it's ever been in a decade. And so as fertility rates or as birth rates are declining and as we have kind of immigration uh, n- not coming in to solve the worker shortage, we're going to face a-, a future where the de- just the pure math, the demographics mean that, Workers are ever more scarce, and it's going to empower workers relative to employers in the long run unless we do something about immigration. Because, again, our working age population is projected to decline in the U.S. in the future without immigration.
0: So what I'm hearing is tear down that wall.
2: Well, I think you're going to hear it from businesses. I think the U.S. Chamber yeah. of Commerce, I think I think a lot of recruiters uh, – Businesses that even have maybe you know, conservative inclinations uh, politically are starting yeah. to realize that they just can't get workers unless we uh, tackle our immigration um, standoff. But uh, politically, we need to come to some resolution.
0: Yeah, well, in, in taking a look at that and also supply chain, we were just talking about uh, inflation, supply chain obviously is a huge impact on inflation, immigration, we can't have immigrants coming in and actually doing, I don't know, the trucking jobs, uh, the driving jobs where we're, we're having supply chain issues as well. I mean, this all seems to be lining up pretty nicely for us here in the United States to, to, to really start to understand how Immigration does positively impact our life, our livelihood, how what we pay for things. Right. And also the jobs that nobody wants to do. We have we have enough American drivers out there, uh, but they're doing other jobs now. So I guess my big question around this is, do you start to see the picture much more clearly after COVID, because all of these things, all these these crazy pandemics and supply chain issues have pretty much come together. Has it made it easier for you to actually see what the problems are?
2: It has clarified some things. And I think, you know, immigration and worker shortages is one part of that. And so just to piggyback off of what you said, I want to tell you a, a pretty wild story. I was speaking to a head of talent acquisition at a trucking company. I won't say who, but this woman said, You know, we had a crazy idea because we were so desperate for for CDL drivers that we tried to call the U.S. government and find out where are... The Afghan refugee settlements in the U.S. and can we get those refugees, if they're eligible, to have CDL licenses and become drivers? (laughs) That's 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 what she told me that they're trying to explore that as a possibility because that's how dire it is for trucking. But to go to back to your broader point, the pandemic has clarified a lot of things, right? It's it's shed light on what you mentioned earlier. Uh, Chad about essential workers and low pay and working conditions. It's clarified a lot of things in terms of remote work is definitely here to stay. It was a huge success. It has clarified things about uh, uh, supply chains and how fragile they are, and this kind of multi-decade trend of let's have globalized value chains with you know just-in-time delivery that are going to be very efficient. Well, that 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 works great. Until it doesn't, until there's bottlenecks. And so it's clear the the pandemic has uh, shaken a lot of assumptions among economists and the dust is still settling. And uh, it's too soon to tell whether some of these changes are permanent. But that's what makes it so interesting and so challenging in this moment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We, we have a lot of uh, recruiters and employers, obviously, who listen to the show, and you give some pretty pertinent advice in terms of recruiting. And I, I want you to talk about uh, your comment that you need to play small ball. What exactly do you mean a- about that? And also on retirement um, you talk about retirees coming back to work. So what advice would you give on the recruiting side to play small ball and get those retirees back to, back to work?
2: That's a great question. And small ball basically means that there are aspects about recruiting that recruiters can, can control, and there are aspects that you can't control. You, you can't control the fact that there are 3 million more job openings than unemployed people, Right. No yeah. one company or one recruiter uh, has the power of the Federal Reserve to set interest rates or to you know, move the, the whole macro economy. So when we talk about small ball, we're telling recruiters, hey, this is really challenging right now. We get it. But there are small tweaks that you can do to optimize in this environment, such as making your apply process as efficient and uh, timely as possible, not dragging applicants through a a kind of obscure and and clunky process. Just get the basic information, have a skinny apply flow and move on. Also with your job ad content, really paying attention to job titles, selling yourself. If you can offer remote work, selling that as a benefit or just mentioning your benefits, period. Writing a good job description, right? And we have a lot of advice on job ad content. Again, that's a, a form of small ball. One other important part of Small Ball that uh, we've already spoken about is wages, right? Benchmarking wages is a process that HR and talent acquisition leaders go through in terms of, you know, what are we offering? Are we competitive? Are we at market? Well, that process was maybe an annual process or a quarterly process. But the world is moving so fast, benchmarking wages just needs to happen at a almost monthly basis now because uh, you're being outcompeted by, you know, large employers who are quickly raising their wages. So those are just some of the recommendations we give out when we talk about playing small ball. And so finally, when when you talk about retirement and how to, uh, uh, you know, Coax those retirees out of retirement. This is actually an important uh, point because when people think of retirement, the, the traditional model is you, you you know you get the gold watch and the handshake and a party and then you're done, right? <laughs> yeah. But- a lot of retirees, like a shockingly high percentage, at some point unretire and go back to work for a bit. And I think the key factor there is going to be the virus. I think virus fears as vaccination rates, knock on wood, continue to tick up with you know the uh, Pfizer vaccine for uh, children and as just hopefully cases subside i mean the delta variant spike this summer uh, was worrisome and probably kept a lot of older workers who are most vulnerable to the virus those retirees it probably kept them out of the labor force but if the recent downtick but again it's 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 unclear whether it's truly a down uh, a downward trend in the virus if this virus actually gets under control and workers older workers feel um, more safe about re- returning to the labor force, then that can be a factor to, to recruit those retirees that accelerated, they brought forward their retirement, but you can bring them back in the labor force.
0: Ah, so much good stuff, Andrew. I, unfortunately, we don't have any more time because your big brain is needed elsewhere. Uh, everybody, this is Andrew Flowers, the big brain economist over at uh, AppCast. Andrew, if you, people want to find out more. You've got videos on this. I mean, you go into some really great detail. Where can people find out more uh, about you, maybe connect with you and also dig deeper into some of this uh, this information?
2: Thank you. It's, it's just been a pleasure to be here. But the, the two resources I'll call out are one, go to appcast.io, uh, check out our website. We have a lot of great resources in terms of uh, blogs about the labor market videos. And then the second resource is a uh, find me on Twitter at Andrew flowers, pretty simple. That's my first and last name, Andrew flowers. Um, follow me, uh, DM me, Uh, I'm more than happy to speak with you or or find me on LinkedIn as well. And again, this has just been a a pleasure, Joel and Chad. And uh, I I love talking about this stuff.
0: Excellent, man. We appreciate you taking the time and we uh, will probably bring you back, you know, maybe dig into some of these a little bit more because uh, we we enjoy the economics of what we do. And we know that uh, our listeners do as well.
2: Thank you.
1: Love it. Another one in the books, Chad. We out. We out.
3: It's so weird. We out. How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts,